You may be seated, and as you do, get out your Bible or your device or the red Bible in the pew in front of you, and join me in reading um, Romans 2. Well, I'll begin in chapters 2, verse 17, and continue on until chapter 3, verse 8. Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know this, his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as those who have, who, be, though, excuse me, let's start again. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, you have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak, and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. This is the word of the Lord. If you are newer with us, um, especially if you um, have only been visiting for the last couple of months, You um, probably aren't aware, back at the beginning of January, we started preaching through the book of Romans, and we took a break for the season of Lent leading up to Easter, and that break is over, and we are now back in Romans. 
And I was also reflecting this morning that, uh, Melanie, I feel like the last couple of times you've been liturgist, you've gotten really long scripture readings, which I promise is not, if you're going to read something into it, read that we like to hear you read and not that I'm out to get you, okay? (laughs) But um, let's pray and then let's think a little bit about God's word. Oh, Father, I just pray that you would be near to us as we um, continue on through the book of Romans, that you would be teaching us what it means to hope and trust in you. Pray that you would just be with us, your people. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, that we might be attentive to it. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what people are the greatest enemies of Christianity? Think about that question. How would you answer that? I mean, if you, if you believe at least the, internet, the people on the internet, right, and on TV, there are lots of enemies out there that they would debate. They're always blaming other people for Christianity's struggles. Have you noticed that? They're blaming some faction in Washington or scientists or atheists or evil college professors or people from other religions who don't, or people who don't share our ethics or whatever. The modern church spends a whole lot of time blaming outside opposition for our struggles. And I don't buy that at all. <laughs> I don't buy it because even if those enemies are real, right, and maybe some of them are and maybe some of them aren't, but even if they're real, they're nothing compared to the sorts of outward opposition that the early church would face. I mean, the apostles suffered enormously in ministry because of outside opposition. The early church was persecuted And I don't mean persecuted in the sense of, like, lost their influence in Hollywood or didn't get holiday cups that they like from Starbucks. I mean that they were, like, tied to posts in the middle of cities and beaten until their backs ran with blood. They were killed for their faith. That happened, and the New Testament admits that that is a hard reality for the church and grieves that reality, but it never blames the church's problems on that persecution. In fact, within the New Testament, usually the way that persecution is regarded is as an opportunity. So, for instance, in 1 Peter, Peter is writing this whole letter about suffering persecution, and this is what he says should be our response, that we should live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. In the Bible, there is no outside group, no enemy outside of the church that can turn people against God, that can hurt the church's mission. But there is a group of people that can do this in the Bible, one group of enemies that does seem to threaten Christianity. It's in our text today, if you look at verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So who's this group, right? Who's this enemy that causes God's name to be blasphemed? That group is outwardly religious, hypocritical believers. The great enemy of Christianity that you find in the New Testament is hypocritical Christians. So Paul, in this passage in particular, he's writing to this church, he's writing to the church in Rome, 
And we talked about this back before we took our break for Lent, but within that church, there's kind of these two groups of people, and he addresses each of them. And in this part of the letter, he's addressing this group who's historically Jewish, right? We talked about this, how before Jesus, God's people were basically equal to this one national and ethnic group, and that God chose this one people, Israel, out of the nations, but that it was, it's clear throughout Scripture that the purpose of that one people is to ultimately be sort of God's missionaries to the world, right? To, to gather in all of the nations to be God's people and worship him. And that in Jesus, that's coming true. And so now people from every tribe and tongue and nation are becoming a part of God's people. Uh, Paul spends a bunch of time in Romans 9 through 11 discussing that, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that this morning. But the point is that in the early church now, there's these two groups within the church, right? There's Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews in the world that Paul's writing into are the old-school religious folks. They're, they know all the Bible stories. They grew up going to Sunday school. They follow all the rules, at least outwardly. And because of this outward religion, they tend to feel like they're the good people, that they're better than the Gentiles around them, that those were the bad people, right, those other people, that those were the sinners and were the righteous few, except, as Paul points out in in these verses, they're not. That is Paul's point in this text, that the Jewish part of the early church, the kind of religious, old-school church people, they're not living out their calling. They talk about God and the law, but then they go and break it. They are hypocrites. And I mentioned when we talked about this idea before, a couple weeks back, that the best way to apply a text like this one then in our world, um, we don't live in the the kind of first days of the church where we see that clear Jew-Gentile distinction, but we can clearly see the same kind of dynamics at work um, by substituting the language of church folk and unchurched folk or something like that for Jews and Gentiles. And that's exactly what's going on when I think about this text and what it means for us. Let me just read you the first part of this passage, just making that kind of substitution, right? He's saying, now you, if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on good Christian morals and boast in your heritage in God, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you use God to make a buck? You who boast in God's morality, do you dishonor him by breaking it? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the non-Christians because of you. The greatest enemy of Christianity in the New Testament is hypocritical Christians. I mean, we all, I think, get this on some level, right? I mean, you all, you've seen the bumper, the, the, the Jesus save me from your followers bumper sticker, Right? Brennan Manning, commenting on the state of Christianity, states, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. By the way, I'm recovering from a cold, so if you hear me sniffling, it's not because I'm overcome with emotion. (laughs) Um, Anyway. From start to finish, the Bible just condemns hypocrisy. It's against it. I mean, from like Cain, right at the beginning, who, who pretends to offer his first fruits when he doesn't and then covers up his murder of his brother, to the prophets who rail constantly against the people who are outwardly religious and tithe and keep the Sabbath while they're ignoring the poor and oppressing the orphan and widow, 
to Jesus, who we saw just a little while back in our Lenten series, going off against the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombs and cups that are only clean on the outside, to John in Revelation condemning the church in Laodicea for its lukewarmness, the Bible from start to finish condemns hypocrisy. So what do we do with that and with this text? Well, first we need to recognize that this hypocrisy affects all of us and really affects us in two ways. First, this hypocrisy of Christians is something that can hurt all of us, not just people outside the church. I mean, I wrestle with it. Every time I see some public Christian do something public that is definitely not Christian, every time I hear Christians defend or excuse sin because it's our people that are doing the sinning, Every time that I hear some pastor is resigning, right? And I go click on the link under that headline, dreading what I'm going to find, and then I find what I'm expecting. Every time that I encounter that, my heart sinks a little bit. Hypocrisy in the church affects all of us, and it affects all of us from the other direction, too. That we all have to recognize that on some level, hypocrisy can be something that we are guilty of. One of the things I know about my heart is that my outrage at sin is almost always proportional to how much I struggle with that sin, right? That the things that I most hate in others, that I get most worked up about when I see them in other people, are the things that down in my heart are the things that I'm tempted by as well. And I suspect that's part of why all of us hate hypocrisy so much, because it's something that we can all easily slip into. So here's what I want us to do this morning as we think about that question and think about this text from Romans. I want us to take this text and use it to just answer two questions. Two questions. First, what do we do with the hypocrisy of other Christians? And second, what do we do with the hypocrisy in our own hearts? All right, what do we do with the hypocrisy of other Christians? And what do we do with the hypocrisy in our own hearts? So first, other Christians, all right? How do we deal with hypocrisy in the church. First of all, and I don't mean this to like mitigate, we're going to talk about it in just a minute, but we do need to make sure that we're defining our terms right. Because sometimes things that I can call hypocrisy aren't exactly that. Um, Sometimes I can call something hypocrisy, and all I really mean is that it's failing to live up to your ideals, right? That I... I say I think that people should do something, and sometimes I fail to do it, and we can call that hypocrisy. And that's not quite right. That's, that's halfway there, as we'll talk about in a second. But, but the thing is, like, in some sense, I want people to have ideals that they're not fully living up to, right? You know, I want to be better than I am, and, and I'm going to, it, it's good for me to, to, to wish to be better than I am right now, right? So that in itself isn't quite hypocrisy. But here's how it becomes hypocrisy. Hypocrisy starts with that kind of failure. It's what Paul's talking about in verse 21, when he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? All right, so they're doing this. They're falling short of what they're saying. But the problem is that at the same time, they're pretending like they aren't. Like they're better than that. So verses 19 through 20, you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. 
So hypocrisy is what happens when we say we believe something and we fall short of that, and then instead of acknowledging the ways that we're falling short, we try to cover them up. We try to hide them. The word hypocrite in Greek um, originally meant actor, like someone on the stage, right, who's in a play. And that's actually really helpful to how we should understand it. The question is not whether we sin or not. We all sin all the time, right? It becomes hypocrisy, though, when we handle our sin in a way that's acting rather than in a way that's honest. That rather than admitting our sin, we try to cover it up. That we see our failures and try to hide them. So it's that lie that we tell to make it look like we didn't do something wrong when we did. It's that way that we go on the attack when somebody points out a fault, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like someone points out some issue you have, and instead of kind of owning it, you say, well, brother, let's talk about you for a minute. Hypocrisy is what we do when, um, when we try to distract people from our sin or pretend like it's not there. All right. So we do need to identify it correctly because there are times that people fail and it's not hypocrisy. But what do we do when we define it right and it is hypocrisy? How do we handle the real hypocrisy that does exist in the church and that I know some of us have been hurt by? Well, first, I mean, if that's you, I'm just sorry, all right? Before we talk about what you should do to deal with it, insofar as I'm a pastor and a Christian and can speak on behalf of God's people, I am sorry if the hypocrisy of Christians has hurt you. Um, I hate that there is hypocrisy in the church. I grieve the times in my life that I have been hypocritical about things, and I am sorry. I know that God hates that hypocrisy too. In this situation that Paul is addressing in this passage, he starts talking about circumcision. Um, I don't know if you picked that up in our reading. And you know what that word means, right? And um, And I feel like we can always just kind of feel a little uncomfortable when that comes up and not know what to do with it. But here's the deal, okay? So religiously, Jews in Paul's world, they would get circumcised as kind of this outward religious marker. We understand it as sort of this sacrament of the old covenant of Israel that in many ways is what baptism is for us now as Christians. It's this marker of who God's people are. And they would use that outward marker to act like they were superior to other people to the Gentiles. And here's Paul's response. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. Which is to say, Paul's saying, you're crazy if you think that God cares only about this outward marker. If he thinks that you're righteous just because, you know, you did that thing that makes us all uncomfortable. Like, that's crazy to think that that matters to God by itself. And again, remember, the best way to apply this is to replace these Jewish Christians with the idea of church folk. So Paul is saying, being religious, going to church, being baptized, saying, bless the Lord, putting a fish on your car, all that stuff, that has value. That's fine if you're walking with God. But if you aren't, then those things on their own are just pretending, and there's no value to that. God is not impressed by our play-acting religion. In fact, God says God would, in many ways, rather have people who aren't religious um, than people who are but, are, but are just using it as a disguise. So look at verses 26. He says, So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? 
The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have written the code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. That's Paul saying God prefers honest atheists to religious hypocrites, if I can give the kind of modern translation. Which is not to say that God wants us to be atheists, right, obviously, but it is to say that God hates hypocrisy. I say that because if you are somebody who's been wounded by hypocrisy from Christians like me, just don't confuse what people like me have done with how God feels or thinks about the world. That God hates that kind of fake religion that's hurt you. God is on your side in that. And his heart aches for you. And his anger burns at those who wounded you in those ways. That's the first part of how we deal with others' hypocrisy. How do we deal with it? Paul's answer in part is to focus on God. Look at the end of verse 29. Paul's describing the opposite of a hypocrite who we should be, and he says, such a person's praise is not from other people, but it's from God. thing is, the more you go looking for hypocrisy, the, the more of it you're going to see. That's just how it works with everything, right? I don't know if you figured this out in life, but if you want to be discouraged about humanity, like, it's really easy, you know? I mean, if you go looking for things to make you despair of, of humanity, you can find them. God is opposed to hypocrisy and hates it. But the only way for you to start to heal from it then is going to be a shift in vision, a shift from spending all of your time just seeing that hypocrisy and how evil it is. And again, God agrees with you that it's evil, but a shift in vision to instead start looking at God. And here's why that matters. I mean, why does hypocrisy hurt us so much? It isn't just the principle of the thing, I don't think. It isn't just because we, you know, we dislike it in the abstract. It's because we are trusting those people who betray us in their hypocrisy. It's because we've been looking to them for support or for wisdom or for love. And it's normal to do that with people, right? It's not wrong to, to look to people hoping to find support or wisdom or love. We need that, and people can offer that but they cannot offer it perfectly. And that's where finding our ultimate hope and identity in God is so important. Because as much as people can offer those things, as much as you can find help in them, they will ultimately fail you. I mean, I will. While not everybody lives in hypocrisy, it's a country that all of us have visited at some points in our lives. And if you are relying on me to be perfectly consistent, if you're relying on me to always be there, to never be selfish, to never do something stupid, I'm going to disappoint you. The hope of Christianity is that it is a religion where that hope doesn't ultimately rest on human beings. Not on your parents, not on your friends, not on your church, not on your pastor. Christianity insists that all of us are sinners, and that's part of what is broken with the world, that we are all sinners, and our hope is that in Jesus, God has drawn near to us, that in Jesus, we have a relationship and a support and a love that doesn't fail, that isn't like those people, a love that is unchanging and faithful and consistent, where we can find support and wisdom and love.
It's like when one of my kids is scared or freaking out, you know, screaming and weeping and throwing a fit. One of the things you just instinctively do as a parent is you get down on your knees and you grab, you know, you take their shoulders or whatever and you say, look at me. Have you ever done that? You know, when they're waking up from a, from a nightmare, you say, look at me. And the reason you're saying that is because as long as they're staring off into the distance, imagining that thing that they're afraid of, that's what they're going to see. But when they turn and look at you, they start to recognize that there's something else there that can support them in the face of their fear. So part of the answer to dealing with the hypocrisy of others is that rather than spending all of our time looking at it, we also need to look at God. And then there's another part of the answer, and that really ties us directly into our second question, and that's that we need to be looking at ourselves. Because that's the second thing we need to ask. What do we do with our own hypocrisy? What do we do with our own hypocrisy? Now, I know some of you kind of bristle probably at that question and what it implies. What do you mean, right? I'm not a hypocrite. And I'm not saying that we are all equally hypocritical, all right? If that's you and you're struggling with it, it is true, like in Scripture, that there, you know, when Jesus goes after the Pharisees as being a particular example of hypocrisy, you know, it acknowledges that we're not all equally hypocritical, but there is hypocrisy that all of us at times are guilty of. I mean, here's what I mean, all right? Paul, in this passage, never uses the word hypocrite directly. We've been using it this morning because it's a useful kind of summary of what he's talking about. But what he directly addresses is this basic tendency that we have to condemn something in other people while ignoring it in ourselves. That's what he's going after, this tendency to condemn something in other people while ignoring it in ourselves. And that is something that all of us do, right? I mean, let's, let's start on a, a really innocent level, maybe an innocent level. Like, it's like, like, I believe that exercise is a good thing, in theory, and um, I actually judge people sometimes who I feel like aren't fit. Except that I'm not very fit, right? <laughs> like, the reality is I am not very good about exercise. But what I do, what I actually reflect on it, is that, like, I'm not really fit, and I'm kind of lazy in things, but the line is right below me. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, like, one millimeter below me is, like, the fitness line, and below that line, you're actually lazy, and, and I can judge you for that. And once you get above that line, you just need a little motivation, man, you know? I mean... <laughs> And, and, and we all do that. We all do that with things like exercise or health or reading or spending time with people. We judge people for being bad at it, even though we are bad at it. I mean, that's hypocrisy, though. That's the very definition of what Paul's talking about. And we don't just do that with exercise, if we're honest with our hearts. We also do that with a lot more serious things. Judge stuff in others while justifying it to ourselves, looking down on people who are just like one millimeter below us on the righteousness scale, um, while telling ourselves that, you know, we're fine. We just need a little more motivation. That's the truth of my heart, at least, and I think it's the truth of all of our hearts, that we might not be the most hypocritical people on the planet, but we are not the least either. We are somewhere on that spectrum, and that means that we have to confront hypocrisy in ourselves as well as in others. So how do you handle that? Part of it, and a really important part, is just admitting 
we just acknowledged to yourself, right? I mean, if hypocrisy is all about play-acting, it's not like you're just play-acting to the world. Oftentimes, the person you're trying the hardest to fool is yourself. But it still leaves us with a question, even when we admit it. What do we do? How do we fight against that hypocrisy? And I think as we close that this passage from Romans 2 gives us two tools to fight against our own hypocrisy. That first tool is what Paul in this passage calls the word of God's law. The word of God's law. Sometimes in reading a passage like this one, we get the impression that the law is somehow a problem. Paul is pointing out that it isn't enough to save us by itself, that the law by itself doesn't make us righteous. But he, does, he doesn't say that because the law is bad. In fact, right at the beginning of his description of the Jews, before he gets into their hypocrisy, he says, Now, if you know God's will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, which is to say, before any of the immorality and hypocrisy, these people were given God's law, and Paul there isn't saying that it's a bad thing. At the beginning of chapter 3, he points out, um, he says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And you expect after what he's just said to be like, none, you losers. But instead what he says is, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So here's the thing about God's law. It is a good and a beautiful and a wonderful thing when we use it rightly. And the problem is that these people in the early church were misunderstanding what it's for. God's law does not exist to make us feel better than other people. It doesn't exist to determine who is and isn't a Christian. It isn't that we can obey it and then have that obedience somehow make us better than other people. But God's law does two things in this text. First, it shows us our sin. God's law is meant to show us our sin. We understand the life of perfect obedience and love that God calls us to. And we understand the pure holiness and total selflessness. And we are forced to understand, as we understand those things, we are not there. That we are not even close to that perfection that God calls us to. And that's part of the point of the law. God's law is supposed to come to us and do that. It's supposed to show us our sin. Which is why it's so dangerous if you read this book and you aren't undone by it if we think that we've arrived when we read God's law, if we aren't convicted of our sin, then the law is actually failing to do what it's for. One of the purposes of the law is to show us the gap that exists between us and God. Whenever we read it, to make us have to confront and acknowledge that gap, that gap that in many ways is what we're trying to wallpaper over when we're guilty of hypocrisy. So God's law does that. And then God's law calls us toward righteousness. That's the other thing it's for. It's meant to call us toward righteousness. Right? Just recognizing that we fall short is not the end goal of Christianity. I feel like sometimes we can get confused there. We can say, we're all sinners, and kind of think about it for a minute, and then say, well, huzzah, let's get on with the sinning. Right? And that's not what the law is for. It's not, as I once heard the little ditty, I love to sin, God loves to forgive. What a delightful arrangement this is. (laughs) We're called to be righteous by God. 
God's law is meant to show us God's will for how we should live, and it is meant to call us towards God's, God's will. So it is meant to call us towards righteousness, but it never calls us towards righteousness in a way that undercuts that first purpose. It's supposed to do both of those things at the same time. It's supposed to constantly both show us our sin and call us towards righteousness. So there will always be that gap between where we are and where Jesus calls us to be. And part, part of the law's purpose is to call us forward, to press into that gap and seek to press towards Jesus, but the other part of the law's purpose is to always show us that gap. So part of what we need is the word of God's law, but there's another tool that we need that comes alongside that. And if we don't have the second tool, just that first one isn't going to get us anywhere. And that is what Paul in this text calls the work of God's Spirit. The work of God's Spirit. So look at verse 29 with me. Paul says, No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So this is important, okay? Leave that verse up there for a minute. I think, like, this is one of those verses that when you read it for the first time, you kind of miss what it's saying. Because I feel like if we read this verse for the first time, we feel like what it's saying is that, um, th- that it says that God's people were supposed to be, it's supposed to mean something inwardly for us. We're supposed to have circumcised hearts. And we read that and think that it's just telling you that you're supposed to do that, that you're supposed to make it really true of yourself inwardly, that you're supposed to circumcise your heart. But that's not actually what this verse is saying. What is our heart being circumcised by in this verse? It's being circumcised by God's spirit. That it's something that God is doing to us. It's the same with being part of, part of in Israel inwardly, actually, which is, Paul's also talking about there. The whole point of Israel was that it was a nation called by God, right? They didn't, like, make themselves God's people, that he came and called and rescued and saved them. We talked about... Well, so, so what that means is Paul is not saying it's not enough to try to change yourself outwardly, all right? Paul's not saying you just need to work really hard to change your heart, too. Instead, what he's saying is you need to stop just trying to change yourself outwardly, but instead you need to start letting your heart be changed by God. Do you see the difference? We talked about that idea of this gap, this gap between where we are and where we should be. And we said that hypocrisy is really this temptation that we have to try to cover over that gap, right? To wallpaper over it and pretend like it isn't there. And so we need the law because it comes and it burns back the wallpaper and it shows us the gap that exists. But the gap is still there and it's still a problem. And what we need in addition to just seeing it is what God does for us in Jesus. Christianity teaches that we actually have the righteousness of Christ. That that's one of the starting places that we find in the gospel. That Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. That he was really righteous, right? Not just play acting. And that by the work of the Holy Spirit, that that righteousness, as we trust in Christ, can cover us as well. From God's perspective and the perspective of the truth, in Jesus we are righteous. Not because we're covering up our sins, not because we are hiding them, but because they have ultimately been hidden in Christ. 
that God loves us because of Jesus. And he looks past our sins because of him. And here's the thing. Having that righteousness from Jesus actually frees us to quit the whole hypocrisy thing. Because you don't need to hide it anymore. Right? If we've been justified by Christ, we don't need to justify ourselves. If we have the righteousness of Christ, we don't have to pretend like we in ourselves are righteous. And that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to press inward toward the will of God. Like we said, we're always supposed to be called by God's will towards Jesus, try to chase after him, try to grow more like him, but we do not in any way have to pretend like we are one step further down that road than we actually are. Because in Jesus, we have every failure covered, and we have the complete and perfect righteousness of Christ. And that frees us from the power of hypocrisy and frees us to honestly be where we are as people loved by God and following after Jesus. So let's walk into that life together this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I acknowledge the many ways that I fall short of what you've called me to. I pray that you would forgive those, forgive them for all of us. And I pray, Lord, that in Jesus we might find true righteousness and welcome. That we might, in chasing after him, be able to be honest about our sin and confess it and find in him its forgiveness and the hope to press ever upward and onward into the life that he calls us to. We pray all of the things in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing? <laughs>